We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have like a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode here of Setting the Pace on your favorite Pacers website, PacersTalk.net. And joining me, as always, as he does on Mondays, is the one and only Kent Sterling. Kent, what's up, man? My life is completely unaffected, Alex. (laughs) I'm sitting at home. That's what I'd be doing anyway. So here we are. Uh, Yeah, I know. And today, Governor Holcomb actually said only essential travel starting Tuesday at midnight, I believe it was. Is that or is it tonight? Uh, Tomorrow night. Tomorrow night. So Tuesday, we get the, the all clear, and then beginning Wednesday at midnight, uh, I guess we got to hunker down. That's what he said. Everybody's yeah. got to hunker down. <laughs> okay. I, I- I am fearful about the grocery stores the next couple of days. Uh, yeah. I went out I went out this week in Kent to Sam's Club on on Saturday morning. They open at 9. I got there at 8.45, and the line was already starting to wrap around the building. So thankfully, I got in right when it was wrapping around the building. By the time we started moving up into where you could actually see the doors, the line was all the way back to the back. I mean, it was unbelievable. And there was no toilet paper. Some lady had been standing in line for like 30 minutes. She walks out before we even get in. She goes, ain't got no toilet paper, ain't got no water, ain't got no disinfectant wipes. And she walks out all all upset. I was just like, this is crazy. But I don't know what she was talking about because I found disinfecting wipes and water in Sam's Club. So I feel bad for her, her loss, but (laughs) it's crazy. You know what? The way grocery stores are uh, laid out, I, I guess it's confusing to some people. I never really have trouble finding things, but evidently that's a problem for some. <laughs> it is, and it was kind of interesting because they said you can only grab like one package of meat per type of meat. So thankfully we were able to get some and ended up splitting it with the in-laws a little bit because, you know, I, I live in an apartment. I don't have a ton of freezer room, so I can't freeze so much food that I can have it last for two weeks. But um, right. we got a package of chicken. We got some ground beef, and we got some steaks. So we should be good uh, until this 14-week quarantine is over with. But anyway, Kent, uh, we got some news to talk about here. And before we jump into this list, I 
know that this is a Pacers podcast. We have a lot of Colts fans, and right now this is the only sporting news that we have that's live. So I wanted to get your thoughts on the recent acquisitions of DeForest Buckner and uh, Phillip Rivers. Well, I have uh, I, I got to tell you, my responses are polar opposite of one another. For DeForest Buckner, I love it. I mean, he's that three-technique guy that you absolutely need. Chris Ballard, the GM of the Colts, at the end of the season said, we really have that as a need. This three-technique is what makes the deal go. We need a really good one. Chris Jones was a guy with the Kansas City Chiefs. You sort of saw how he made San Francisco kind of squirm a little bit in the Super Bowl with Jimmy Garoppolo. And, and uh, um, then you saw on the other side of the ball – you saw DeForest Buckner, and he had a sack and a half uh, against um, the Chiefs. So you see how that three technique is really, really important to, to establishing pressure, collapsing the pocket, making it, a, making those defensive ends even more effective because the quarterback can't step up into the pocket. This is how you you make this thing go. It's not with quarterbacks covering for four seconds. It's with defensive ends and defensive tackles pressuring the quarterback so he doesn't have four seconds to throw. Mm-hmm. That's the whole thing. And so DeForest Buckner, he, he's been healthy as a horse his entire career, four years with the 49ers, terrific at what he does. Couldn't get Chris Jones, so you get DeForest Buckner. You feel really good about that. Phillip Rivers, completely different deal. <laughs> Phillip Rivers is 38. He's going to be 39. He's never been to a Super Bowl. He's been to the playoffs once in the last six years. Over the last 10 years of the regular season, the Chargers with him as a quarterback in every game. The guy's never missed a game. He's never missed a start. They're 77 and 83. And while he wasn't the only problem for that team, he was a problem for that team. So what you're getting, you're kind of getting a diminishing asset who's entering a, a realm of age where guys not named Tom Brady or, or Drew Brees do kind of diminish a little bit in their skill set. And a guy who even when he was as good as he ever was, wasn't good enough to get his team into the Super Bowl. So I I am not awed by spending $25 million on that guy, not whatsoever. Yeah, I'm right there with you. I thought it was a mistake as soon as the reports came out that the Colts were going to have interest in Phillip Rivers. And I'm like, what are we doing? I mean, I I do think that he is an upgrade over Brissett. That's fine. But – I also understand that he's getting up there in age. He's never been a true winner. You know, I you know I, I watch some of the mic'd up stuff, and, you know, it is kind of funny to watch him t- trash talk on the field. Uh, what he says, it's hilarious. But, you know, at the end of the day, a lot of people just hate Phillip Rivers that are Colts fans. And yeah. so they weren't, like, ecstatic about it. Now, there are some people on the other side that were like, oh, yeah, I love this move. And I, I wasn't in that boat um, with DeForest Buckner. I completely love that move for all the reasons you said. Now, I would have loved to have been able to hang on to that 13th overall pick and go get you a stud wide receiver in this draft. But, you know, I'd much rather have a proven guy at that position with where the Colts were looking for a three-tech defensive lineman than, you know, wasting that pick or using that pick, not wasting, but using that pick on an unproven wide receiver. So at least you know what you're getting there. But I got to get your thoughts because it's today pro football talk uh, brought up Peter King's um, Monday football article talking about Tom Brady had interest in the Colts, but the Colts did not have interest in Tom Brady. Phillip Rivers was their guy from the get go. So you look at the contracts, who would you rather have paid Kent? 
oh, I'd rather have paid Tom Brady, but I'm a little bit, I'm dubious of the report. You know, a lot of times guys feed uh, information to people in the media in order to get a desired result, right? Mm. Or in order to avoid an undesired result. And, and I think that might have been kind of where this came from. I, I it, it, Chris Ballard's really a smart guy. Yeah. You know, it, nobody in their right mind would rather have Philip Rivers, who's coming off a 5-11 and season, rather than Tom Brady, who's coming off a 12-4 and season. I mean, nobody, nobody would think, by God, this Rivers kid... This is our guy. He's going to take us to a Super Bowl, and we're not even going to accept the phone calls of a guy who's won six of them and been to nine. You know, that just doesn't make any sense. And so I'm going to give Chris Ballard the benefit of the doubt because he's earned it. He's built a lot of equity in in pro football circles and in Indianapolis for being a really, really smart guy and a guy who runs a terrific organization. I get Philip, even though I don't like it. I get Philip Rivers as a stopgap, but mm-hmm. there is no reason to. There's nothing about Philip Rivers that you would covet in place of Tom Brady. It's just illogical. I, one year, two year, whatever. Yeah. If you got Tom Brady for one year, but you sign him for two, that I'd rather have than Philip Rivers. You know, coming in under a one year deal for twenty five million, where you've got no long term exposure. Yeah, I, I guess the three things that I thought of when I was thinking of why the Colts would want to have Rivers for one year over Brady for two was, in fact, the longevity of the contract, number one. Number two, the age. Uh, Rivers is a little bit younger. Tom Brady you know, is getting up there. He's going to be 45 at the end of this contract that he signed with the Buccaneers, I believe. So, you know, you don't usually see quarterbacks play at an elite level at that age. I mean, we're already saying Rivers at 38, 39 is going to be not elite. So a guy that has six more years uh, age-wise on him would make you feel the same way. And then, of course, I, I think the other reason is the familiarity with Phillip Rivers and the coaching staff and already knowing the playbook. And this might sound dumb, but with the coronavirus and with them having limited opportunities to be together, could that have been a big factor in the fact that they – wanted to get a guy that was familiar with the system. I don't think so. And yeah. and a lot of people have cited that with Frank Reich. He worked with Sirianni and Reich at, at San Diego, two years with Reich as the offensive coordinator. And in those two years, uh, Philip Rivers, in the first one, he led the league in interceptions with 18. In the second one, I think the Chargers were 4-12. and 12. So and, and that was the end of Frank Reich in San Diego. So I don't think that this is some kind of, you know, really happy reunion of two guys who made beautiful music together. These are guys who didn't make good music together at all. And and so, like, it, I would think that Frank Reich, maybe he, he went into Chris Ballard's office and Ballard asked about him. And he's like, oh, yeah, 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 sure, whatever you want to do, Chris. And then he went into the hallway and banged his head against the wall for about five minutes because he <laughs> wants no part of working with this guy who, uh. who's – whose poor performance in that offensive system caused the end of Frank Reich with the Chargers. So, I, yeah, I, I don't think that this is some kind of happy reunion. Well, I don't know. I mean, I get what the reports are saying, but I also think that uh, from what I heard from Kevin Bowen, like he said, Frank Reich was gushing about Phillip Rivers and the type of worker that he is. So I don't know if uh, – well. <laughs> I, I'm just saying I don't know necessarily if he was so anti it as you're saying. <laughs> Frank Reich hadn't said a negative word about anybody 
Frank Reich, like two years ago, said Jacoby Brissett's a top 20 quarterback in the NFL, and he said it with a straight face in a way that people walked away from it believing that he believed that. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think that he did. I think Frank Reich is just really, really good at not you know, not crapping on people in public because it does you no good as a leader to do it. I think he's smart enough to avoid that. And I think he, you know, I I just can't believe it. Like, can you, I mean, if you look at those two years in 14 and 15 and you look at what Phillip Rivers did as a quarterback, if you were the offensive coordinator who who ran the show that this guy performed in that way, would, would you... Would you be enthusiastic about working with him again? I can't believe you would. Yeah, I mean, I don't think you would either. There's no doubt about it. I mean, you wouldn't be enthusiastic. But if you saw what you had to deal with last year with Brissett towards the end of the season, I think you'd be excited for any type of change, right? No, that's true. That's true. It beats the hell out of Brian Hoyer. There's no doubt about that. Yeah, there is no doubt about that. So now I'm just curious, before we move on to some Pacers talk here, last thing, you know, I don't think the Colts are done. They still have money to to use, but what type of move do you think they're going to make next, and what moves do they need to make? Well, you know, that's the interesting thing is that, like this Phillip Rivers deal, it doesn't make sense in the abstract, mm-hmm. but we don't know what what plot points are to come, right? We don't know what the second act of this offseason is going to look like, and we don't know what the draft is going to look like. And so yeah, what I what I really do think they need, because they lost – Pierre Desir to free agency. They they waived him, and then the Jets signed him. Uh, you need cornerbacks, and and not just one, because you got Kenny Moore right now, and you've got Rocky Seen. And while Rocky Seen was okay last year as a rookie, you know, is is he a guy that you can really project as as sort of that cornerback who can be a stopper? Kenny Moore is serviceable and perfectly fine, but you need more guys. Mm-hmm. Quincy Wilson. I, they, they, that poor kid, they kept running out there and he kept failing. I, I don't know what you do at cornerback. And, and I think they got to go get one. Those guys aren't, uh, you know, they aren't low hanging fruit ever. You've got to figure out which one you want and not having a first round pick and, and having, you know, most of the free agents having those guys already been picked over. Um, I think that's a little bit difficult, but you've also got to get wide receivers. If yeah. you're going to sign Philip Rivers to throw the deep ball, you got to have some guys who are able to create some separation and go catch a deep ball. So I would expect the Colts to do that, especially in the second round, 34-44. It wouldn't surprise me to see them take two wide receivers with those two picks. They've got to get a wide receiver. I mean, you bring Philip Rivers in here, and who is he throwing the ball to? That's the question. Yeah, you know, T.Y. Hilton is in his 30s, coming off injury once again. What's he going to look like? You know, you lose Eric Ebron, and I know that's not much of a loss, but, no. you know, you, you got Jack Doyle, but now your backup tight end, you're still trying to figure out who that's going to be. And, you know, Mo Alley Cox, is he even on the roster still? I, I'm not sure if he is, but. Uh, he is right now. Right. And they didn't play him very much last year after he had a pretty good year the year before, so not sure why they didn't play him much. And then. You look at the other wide receivers, I mean, Zach Paschal cannot be your number two wide receiver heading into uh, training camp because <laughs> I love Zach Paschal. He did a good job last year, but he is not a number two wide receiver type player. He's a three or a four, you know, more of a special teams type of guy. That's what they were using him for. But he became a reliable, you know, target for Jacoby Brissett. But talent-wise, he's limited in what he can do. You need a 
you know, a game changer. And I don't think you're going to necessarily get that right away with the guys coming back. Who who was the guy that drafted again last year? Wide receiver and, got hurt. Uh, well, they two years ago they they got Reese Fountain. Uh, they signed Devin Funches. It was from Ohio receiver. State. They had that wide receiver. From oh, Paris Campbell. Yes, sure. yes, yes, Campbell. I couldn't. Yeah. I was having a blank on his name. And so he got injured last year. Uh, Fountain a got lot. injured. So it's like, and he had fumbles a lot too. So it's uh, nobody you can really rely on. I just, that's an area I want to see them work on. But anyway, I think that's enough Colts talk for now. We're going to take a quick break. We'll come back and we will uh, tackle this top 30 list as we go from number 11 uh, to number 20. Alrighty, everybody, we are back, and we are going to start at number 20. So, Kent, number 20 on your top 30 Pacers of all time list, who you got? I got the Rifleman, the great Chuck Person at number 20. Played okay. six years for the Pacers from uh, 87 to 92. He was incredibly consistent for all six of those years. The thing that really kind of set him apart for me was he got pissed off during one game, and I think it was in Chicago at the time, and I remember it, so I'm assuming it was against the Bulls, where he punted the ball into the stands. <laughs> and if you get so pissed off, you can punt the ball into the stands and, and say to hell with it. I'll take the fine. I'll take the suspension, whatever. I, I got you. I got you back. I'm going to set you as number 20 in my all-pacers team. Yeah, I got Chuck Person a little bit higher than that just because I thought he was a, a big part of the Pacers' success in those late 80s, early 90s teams. Uh, for me at number 20, I went with a veteran who was really on the tail end of his career when he came to the Pacers and dealt with some injuries and ended up losing a starting job. But I went with Chris Mullen, uh, just a guy that was a solid pro during that 97 to 2000 run, the Larry Bird era. And honestly, that was probably the one of the – top three most memorable memorable Pacer teams during their uh, tenure of NBA franchise history. So, you know, with the Pacers, he only averaged 9.4 points. Uh, 91% free throw shooter was 44% from beyond the three, which is incredible. You know, he put up, put up good percentages, just a lot of low volume. And he was limited in his minutes because he was getting older. Uh, that first year with the Pacers, he played all 82 games, and then he ended up only playing 50 uh, the following year, I think that was the lockout season, if I'm not mistaken, in 98-99. Yeah. And then in 99, he only started two games the year they went to the NBA Finals. So, yeah, you know, 34 through 36 was his time here with the Pacers uh, age-wise. And Chris Mullen, you know, just somebody I really remember being with those teams, and that's kind of probably why I put him on there, more for nostalgic reasons than overall talent. Yeah, I loved him. Uh, I thought he was one of those guys that could put you over the top in terms of winning a championship, I, I thought that that was a team where that bench needed to be, you needed veterans on that bench and you needed them to be productive in the limited minutes that they were going to play. I thought Mully was one of those guys. And I saw, I thought Sam person was one of them, you know, it, it, and McKee. I mean, if you're bringing those three guys off the bench, that's a hell of a second unit. Yeah. You know they're going to be professionals. You're never going to have any problem with them. They want to win a championship. They'll accept their reduced role. That to me, Those moves, to me, put the Pacers in a position in 98 and in 2000 to really be in serious contention for an NBA title. No doubt about it. You know, Sam Perkins was somebody I left off my list, but he was definitely a nice contributor there for a couple of years for the Pacers. And you're right. The veterans made a huge part in that successful Like. Sometimes they look at these rosters now, and they have no vets on their bench. And it's right. like their benches just kind of fall apart. It's like 
even though these guys are a little bit older and they don't have the same skill level as a young 20-year-old, 22-year-old, they know the game, they know how to win, and having smart players on your team is better than having uh, overall athletic players on your team that have potential. And, you know, I, I noticed that a lot with the the way teams are building now. They're leaving a lot of old guys out of the league, and some of the old guys that are getting, you know, pub are out of the league for a reason, like a J.R. Smith-type player, Nick Young, they're knuckleheads, but I'm talking true professionals. That's why you see a guy like Jared Dudley last for as long as he's last. Even though he's limited in what he can do on the court, he is great for the locker room and that kind of mentality and that kind of mentorship. So I agree with you. Uh, that's a great point. So let's move on. Uh, I don't want to ramble too long here. Number 19, who you got? I got uh, Darnell Hillman. Okay. Number one, uh, great dunker, enormous hands, and, and I kind of cheated here. Because while Darnell wasn't an all-star with the ABA or the NBA Pacers, he, he played one year in the NBA with the Pacers and then kind of knocked around for a few years with a few other teams. He has been such a good dude in that building, still yeah. works at, uh, at Bankers Life Fieldhouse at, at the age of 70, and still goes out and does the Read Like a Pro events is terrific with kids, runs the camps in the summer for the Pacers. He has just been for 50 years uh, with a few years, like, on an, you know, he's he had some years away, but uh, working in the front office now, I, I just love the way he represents the team and what he did on the floor, what he does in the front office. Uh, that boosted him a little bit, and uh, so I threw him in at number 19. That That's a fair point. I don't have Darnell on my list, and – Maybe I should have, you know. I always, I always know who he is when he's around Bankers Life Fieldhouse. A, a fantastic guy, loves to smile, loves to talk to people. Uh, a huge part of this Pacers community, so he definitely deserves some love. And I'm glad you made your list. And of course, I never really watched him, but I do think that next year, if the All Star Game still happens, uh, <laughs> whatever is going to happen with the NBA, I would love to see him as a judge for the dunk contest. Uh, pay some homage to Indianapolis because his nickname is Dr. Dunk. So I'm I'm with you there. For me, though, Ken, at number 19, I've got the big man, the double nickel, Area 55's only Roy Hibbert. <laughs> and Hib uh, Hib Roy, right? So, you know, not a lot of great numbers with the Pacers as far as production. Uh, 11 points per game. You know, Lance wasn't still in his rebounds. He only averaged about seven rebounds a game and, you know, two blocks. But I just absolutely loved – the way he was the center of the Pacers' defense when they had some nice runs there from 2011, 2012, all the way up to 2014. And they played the Miami Heat. They ran into the best team in the Eastern Conference throughout that time. But Hibbert created the the rule, verticality rule, and he was fantastic. And there was a lot of speculation on what in the world Frank Vogel was thinking when he left Hibbert out of the game. Uh, when yeah. the, the Heat came back and beat him in game one, I think it was of the 2012-2013 game. Maybe it was 2013. Maybe it's 2011-2012. I can't even remember now. All the years run together. But, you know, there was that rule there. And you, you think about the block he had on Carmelo to get the Pacers to the Eastern Conference Finals uh, as the underseeded number three seed going up against the number two Knicks. So you just, you just remember those moments, those iconic moments with Roy Hibbert. And you don't try to think about the bad ones where he can't guard Pero Antich uh, in the first round with the Pacers-Hawks series. But you, you try to dwell on the good things. And I think that overall he had a really solid career here. People really liked him when he was here. And uh, I believe you said he was on Parks and Rec too. So that's another reason to like him, right? Exactly. Exactly. 
Yeah, I, I liked Roy, and I had him at number 22. He was an all-star. That counts for something. And, uh, you know, he's drafted 17th. He was a guy, there was some question about his motor when he got here. Uh, I thought he played hard for the most part, despite being a guy that I think if he had, you know, if he'd only been six feet tall, I doubt he would have spent a lot of time in a gym. I think he would have, he would have designed video games or programmed software. That seemed to be kind of his love. But, uh, you know, for a time, I thought he was an, an exceptionally important component to teams that, again, had a shot. You know, there was a championship potential window for that team, and he was a big part of it. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. Now, do you remember this or not, but the Blazers gave him an offer sheet that the Pacers matched. Oh, yeah, right. This is when Larry Bird took that year off. I, I remember Bird saying some vague comments, but basically, like, he wouldn't have matched that offer sheet for Hibbert. Uh that was one thing that I found interesting. I don't know if you remember that or not, but I very I remember vaguely. him. You do remember it vaguely, yeah, yeah. And I remember that I'm like, because he didn't like say too much about it. He just kind of quickly said something, and I was like, was Burge just hinting at that he would have let Hibbert walk in those pivotal moments? Like that's interesting that he thought that. But you know, one thing I do know that Hibbert was an emotional guy, and it seemed like mentally sometimes things just got to him. And you can, I mean, he was one of the best quotes in the entire locker room. That's for sure. Uh, Talking about selfish dudes, and then when he dropped the you mofos haven't watched us play, uh, the the no homo comment that he said one time too. It's just uh, he was always uh, an interesting quote. There's no doubt about that. But uh, that's absolutely true. Yeah, (laughs) I I mean he was a likable guy. It it was just by the time I got here and I was in the locker room, it was kind of like, well, this guy doesn't. Not only doesn't he want to talk, I don't even think he wants to be here. Yeah. You know, and, and, and things had kind of devolved to that level. And, uh, you know, the no homo thing, that, that that's no good. <laughs> yeah. You can't, you got to have, you got to have a little bit of sense in how you communicate. That would have been a lot worse if it had been about three or four years later. There's no doubt about that. I mean, it was still when Twitter was not the most popular yeah. thing in the world when he said it. So he got off the hook there a little bit with that comment. But yeah, Roy Hibbert, 19. Let's move on to number 18. Kent, who you got? I got Mark Jackson. Okay. Mark Jackson was a one-time All-Star, and that was with the Knicks. He played six seasons for the Pacers. I I thought that really, I I don't know that Reggie Miller would have become Reggie Miller without Mark Jackson kind of being his Robin. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I I think it was really important for Reggie to have a guy like Mark. I thought that Mark was a really kind of a, a, a KG psychologist with Reggie. And elevated him and elevated him to the point where he kind of became that Superman figure. Not to mix my uh, superheroes, but I, I thought that it was because of Mark yeah. that that happened. Uh, not a uh, not a great defensive basketball player, but I think offensively, a guy who kind of set the table, who understood, especially when uh, when Larry Bird was the coach and during those uh, those runs. Uh, with the Pacers back in 98, 99, and 2000, I, I thought that he was really critical to, to what the Pacers were trying to do. I, I thought he was great here. Well, and I think I have him a little bit higher up on my list, and I'll get to him later when we uh, talk about him later in the show. But I want to bring this up, and I think this is a great case for why Mark Jackson is so valuable. They traded him in the summer of 95, 96, I believe it was. Yeah. And, and they traded him for Jalen Rose to the Denver Nuggets. And at that time... 
the Pacers, that's the only year in the 1990s that they missed the entire playoffs, that they, they made the playoffs every other year except that year. And that was the year they traded Mark Jackson. And eventually, I think he ended up playing 30 games for him that season. They traded back for him, but it was way too late in the season. Uh, they finished 10th that year. Mark Jackson came back and was trying to, you know, revive that season for the Pacers. But losing a, a point guard, a floor general like Mark Jackson, they put Travis Best in there at times. I know Jalen Rose wasn't even really getting many minutes at that point. So you're playing Travis Best at your starting point guard. Like, no offense to Donnie Walsh, but I understand Jalen Rose was a young talent from the Fab Five, and that was a, a probably a bigger move for the future. But at that time, the Pacers were really well-rounded, and, and giving up a key piece like Mark Jackson – I think he realized his mistake. That's why he went back and got him, and I think that's a big reason why he needs to make this list just for that season of them missing it alone. You know, and they got Eric Dampier in, in the trade where they got where they got Mark back. And uh, I th- unless I'm mixing up my Jackson trades, which very well could be. Um, yeah, I can't remember. But I, How they I, drafted Dampier? They did, but they got that pick. Okay, gotcha. That makes so sense. So it, I, I know he was. Um, Let's see. Well, uh, no, they got him as part of the compensation in the trade that also brought Rose here. Okay. So okay. Jackson went with Ricky Pierce and a first-round pick who became Ephthemus Rentius uh, for Jalen Rose, <laughs> Reggie Williams, and the pick that brought Eric Dampier okay. here. And then he came back with LaSalle Thompson for Vincent Askew, Eddie Johnson, and a second-round pick. Uh, in fact, a couple of second-round picks. So really, like they traded him, got Jalen, and then made another trade and got Mark back. So with the exception of that one year, it, it was kind of a series of KG moves to put together two pieces of the puzzle for that team that that from 98 to 2000 was terrific. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. That was some good moves that got him back here, and I agree. You know, Mark was a pivotal piece, and he's up higher on my list. And then for me, number 18, I believe, we're on. I went with Ron yep. Artest. I think you had him a little bit uh, lower on your list. I think you mentioned I did. Him last he was week. 27. 27, yeah. So uh, this was a tough one for me because I get it. The whole brawl thing really put a damper on people's admiration for Ron Artest, and rightfully so. You know, was he's talked about it, mental health. He was not there all the way and he definitely needed some guidance along the way his anxiety was getting to him sitting out for so long coming back you know ends up asking for a trade they trade him for Paige Stoyakovic and the rumor was they actually could have gotten Carmelo Anthony if they had just waited a little bit longer because Denver was going to pull the trigger on that trade ended up getting a half a season of Paige Stoyakovic he kind of flaked out and then went to New Orleans so waste of a trade there in my opinion but you got rid of a troublemaker you got a rid of a guy that was not wanting to be there. But overall, Ron Artest, I mean, at his elite level, I mean, he was really darn good, Kent. And he was going to make the Pacers a championship contender had he not gone into the stands and did what he did. So, um, you know, a lot of people don't like him. I get it. But for what he did when he was here, Defensive Player of the Year was a key component of that of that Pacers 2002, 2000. Uh, Three years, uh, 2004, obviously, is when he got suspended, 0405. But that era, you think about, you cannot think about that team without including Ron Artest and Jermaine O'Neal. He was one of the nicest guys that you could ever talk to in your life. Mm-hmm. Completely unassuming, really, really decent, uh, a, a very nice human being, in addition to being a terrific two way player. 
a guy who could score and a guy who could absolutely lock down at three spots on the defensive end. I, I liked Ron Artest a lot. Yeah, great basketball player. It just stinks that it ended the way that it did. And I honestly think the Pacers really thought they had something there for the long term, and that brawl just completely changed yep. the trajectory of the franchise. And that, you know, that probably deems a little to be a little bit lower than what I gave him. And I think, you know, if you put eighteen plus twenty seven and divide that by two with our list, that makes perfect sense where he would land up in our uh, combined list. But uh, anyway, let's move on. Number seventeen, Kent. Who do you got? I go with Bob Netolicki. Uh You know, I, I think that Neto um, uh, also, as from the time he came here, he's been a guy who's sort of lived here. He, he spent part of a couple of years outside of Indianapolis, but he was a four-time All-Star, two-time champion, finished things up here as part of the ABA Pacers, never got to the NBA, which I think is a shame because I think during his career when he averaged – I mean, in, in 1969, 1970, average 20 and 10.7. He was really, really good, and I think kind of the heartbeat of this team and, and part of the collective that became that, to me, the, the franchise in the ABA. Mm. Uh, I think Bob Netolicki deserves to be, to be listed. I know he's a little bit further down on your list, but I like Neto. Yeah, he was 26, and like I said, this is where my – ignorance comes in with watching ABA basketball. I haven't done enough research, don't know enough about it to really talk about it uh, like I would like to. So that's on me, but I, I definitely think, you know, he's worthy of making the list and that's why I had him on mine as well. So I'm completely fine with him at 17 for yours. And I, I'm, I'm pretty sure you mentioned him last time when we talked, but I have at 17 Vern Fleming. Yeah. So, so, you know, he played with the Pacers pretty much his entire career for, I think it was 10 seasons, if I'm correct, 11 seasons. And he averaged almost 12 points a game, five assists, you know, was that steady point guard before they got Mark Jackson, if I'm correct. So, you know, he was somebody they relied on. He played a little bit of backup point guard at times with Pooh Richardson on the roster. Um, and I think they even played a little bit together sometimes in that starting lineup. So, you know, Vern Fleming, though, just a pacer through and through. He played one year without the Pacers with the New Jersey Nets and was kind of a bench player for him, only played in, only started in three games. So you kind of saw that he was becoming less of an important piece. After after 91, he only started uh, the most was eight games, and that was in the 1993 era. So, yeah, you know, I like Vern Fleming, but he wasn't necessarily the greatest pacer, but he was a longtime pacer. Great part of the franchise, a solid player for that team, and that's why I have him at number 17. Yeah, and I've got him a little bit higher than that, but I love Vern, and, and Vern's still around, and you still see him at different places, and uh, just a really, really nice guy and a great representative of the organization, and, and a guy that people really loved as part of those teams. That was right before I got here. Mm -hmm. uh, that he played with the Pacers and and but somebody who like when you go to games every once in a while you'll still see a Vern Fleming jersey he means that much to the people here absolutely well let's move on to number 16 who you got Kim I got AD Antonio Davis you know he's drafted he was a second rounder in 1990 didn't make his debut with the Pacers until 93 but I thought with he and Dale I thought that 98 team, which to me is the best of the Pacers teams, I thought he was a, a really integral part of what they tried to get done. And, and as they tried to, to vanquish the Bulls during that last great run of theirs, 
uh, I thought AD was really, really important. No, Antonio Davis was important. I have him a little bit lower on my list at 23. So, yeah, I love Antonio Davis. I was just trying not to be biased because I loved big guys back in the 90s so much. I love the tenacity that he played with. The Davis brothers were just so mean. And, you know, we mentioned this, I think, the last time I brought him up, is I thought he would have been a huge pivotal piece in that 2000 NBA Finals against the Lakers, yeah. not having him really hurt. You know, if you would have had him instead of Austin Crozier, that would have been fantastic as far as size goes. You know what <laughs> well, I mean? Well, wait a minute. Austin was okay. Austin made a lot of money playing in that final series I, against the Lakers. He did very nicely for himself. I know and, he you did. You know, with some gaudy averages. It would have saved the Pacers that stupid contract they gave him. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I just think he would have had a better shot up against Shaq. You know what I mean? As far as banging down low. I know oh, that yeah. Crozier still was you know, that was Crozier's best year. I, I, don't get me wrong. I get that. But I just think, you know, even though that was Crozier's best year, I would have much rather had Antonio in that series. But, you know, I love Antonio. I think he's a great fit at number 16. You know, that's that's a good fit for him. Uh, anything else on Antonio that you wanted to say? No, I just thought he was a, he was a good dude. You know, mm-hmm. he was uh, – I used to see him in line at the Taco Bell. There's a Taco Bell in Nora, or there used to be. <laughs> And I'd go there because I was working at WIBC, and we were at Meridian, just a little north 86th. And so I'd hop down to that Taco Bell, and there AD would be, you know, periodically, and nobody would bug him. And that was really the first time that I saw the way Indianapolis treated celebrities. Mm-hmm. And that's just as as another guy. And And so I've always told people that, look, if you want to be treated, if you want to be paid superstar money, but be treated as a human being and have a real life down here, this is the place to be. Yeah. Like they, They're not going to mob you. They're not going to bug you for autographs. They're going to let you be, and it's all going to be fine, and you're, you're going to love it here. And, and that was the first time I kind of saw, you know, because, I mean, the dude's like 6'11", for God's sake. Yeah. It's obvious that it's him, and we're in that kind of windy thing, sort of waiting to order, and nobody bugged him place was crowded people just left him alone i i thought i really got an insight to what people in indianapolis are about like during that that trip to the taco bell can you imagine in social media era if somebody saw antonio davis a professional basketball player at taco bell what they would be (laughs) posting about i mean it's just crazy if you think about it like it was only like 15 years before that but 20 years maybe before social media took you know wildfire but i'm just saying like if somebody were like wow antonio davis doesn't care about basketball he's at taco bell doesn't take care of his body i could already see the headlines i mean poor guy would have been crucified for that so that's a that's a great story kit and if i'm not mistaken i I do believe that a lot of, of the former players used to go down to Fridays after home games right there. Did by, they really? That's, I, I remember that uh, okay. somebody I think that I know used to work there, and they'd say, yeah, it would be like Dale Davis, Antonio, and somebody else would always be down at Fridays after weekend home games uh, that the Pacers would have. And they would. it's the one right down there by the zoo in the, I think, J.W. Marriott's right there too. Oh, yeah. I've been there. Yeah. So Not often. Right, and that's what they said that it was where it was like the go-to place for the uh, for the players after games, and I'm just like, man, isn't that crazy? What a time we live in. Fridays was the go-to place for professional athletes in the '90s. But uh, I digress. Let's move on. My number sixteen. I I don't know if you mentioned him or not yet, but I put Jalen Rose at number sixteen, and I love Jay Rose, and I know that he was a big part of the Pacers' success. Uh, during those NBA Finals runs, I mean, started he took Chris Mullins' spot, 
Played a little bit of point guard after that before they traded him to get Ron Artest, Ron Mercer, Brad Miller, and I believe it was Kevin Ollie in that deal. So, yeah, yep. it was a, a trade that I absolutely loved. And even though I got rid of Jalen Rose, I was excited for the guys coming in. But Jalen was such a, a fun player. He's It's always fun to hear him talk about the Pacers now and his time there. He spent the most time with Indiana out of all the teams that he played with. He ended up being kind of a journeyman playing with Toronto, Denver, Chicago, Phoenix, and the Knicks. So, you know, it was cool to see that he had his most important years here as a Pacer. A lot of guys related to him. The Fab Five, of course, one of the greatest college teams that everybody remembers. And, you know, he was that lefty and could play a little bit of point, was a really, really solid basketball player. But, unfortunately, he's probably mostly known for getting – uh, the assignment of guarding Kobe Bryant when Kobe put 81 points on him uh, when he played for the Raptors. So, you know, poor Jalen with that situation. But I thought he was huge to the Pacers' success in that finals run and was that young guy but needed those veterans on that team to elevate his game. How about this for a little nugget about uh, Jalen Rose and Antonio Davis? Jalen Rose was traded by the Bulls with Lonnie Baxter and Danielle Marshall to the Raptors for Antonio Davis. And then, two and a half years later, he was traded by the Raptors with a 2006 first-round draft pick to the New York Knicks for Antonio Davis. So he was traded for Antonio Davis or in packages involving Antonio Davis twice in his career. I've got him at number 14. I love Jalen. I think Jalen's just a really good dude. I, I do also like the way he represents the Pacers when he talks on Get Up and and on various programming from ESPN. Uh, it's clear that he considers himself kind of an Indiana Pacer first, mm-hmm. and and I like that about him. But if you talk to Mark Monteith about, about Jalen, it was clear that he was going to be a media star when he was a player. Mm-hmm. He loved talking, and and he respected the media a great deal. And, and I've always had a lot of respect for Jalen just because Larry Brown hated him. <laughs> and and with Larry like when Larry Brown hates you that's not good like he, he nobody wants to be hated especially by a guy who's as acerbic as Larry Brown is but Jalen kept going to work and figuring it out and then Larry left and he was replaced by Larry and Larry loved Jalen and all of a sudden stuff turned around and and his career really pivoted yeah no Larry Bird was the best thing for Jalen Rose no doubt about it and I, I really do think playing with veterans made a difference. I mean, he was that young guy, but he was playing with just – I mean, look at that pace team. They had experience in the playoffs. They needed somebody a little bit younger because they were getting older, and Jalen was that guy. And I believe it was him and Reggie that – didn't they have 40-point games together? Yeah, right. Was that in the right, finals? exactly. Or was that just a regular not, season game? I don't know. That's a good question, yeah. but I remember that happening. Yeah, it's you know, and I mean, if they would have stayed together a little bit longer, it would have been fun. But I know that it's time to move on eventually from him because I think at that point in his career, a, run, a young Ron Artest, I mean, we saw how good Ron was when he first got here. That probably was the smart move, and we didn't have any idea that Ron was going to do what he did a couple years later. So, you know, it's it's I like Jalen at 14 too. You know, there's a, a lot of debates here that I had. I could have moved him up, but I didn't want to move him too far up because I didn't think his longevity with the team was long enough to overplace him with like guys like Dale Davis, Mark Jackson, stuff like that. But, you know, you had him at 14. I think smack dab in the middle is a perfect fit for him. You know what? He was, he was really smart. 
And if you look at those teams, and, and if you look at really good basketball teams in general, I was thinking about this, and I wrote about it today in terms of the 1981 Indiana University National Championship team. Really, really, really smart guys who are really smart basketball players. I think that that team from, from 98 until 2000, you had some really, really smart basketball minds on that oh, yeah. team and, and not just like Larry you had and Rick Carlisle and Dick Harder on the bench but you also had guys who played whether it was Mullen or Perkins or Miller or Jack or McKee. Rose yeah McKee Smiths really really smart you had you, you had a you had a combination of really intellectual basketball players uh, who could play still at a high end athletically and and I think that intellect and, and that kind of basketball smarts thing is, is sometimes really not not respected at the level it should be as you're putting together a roster. Mm-hmm. You know, if you see bad teams, generally the players are dopey. And if you see really good teams, generally the players are really, really smart. I mean, look at that. Look at the team from the Spurs, right, with Manu and, and Tony Parker and David Robinson and Chris Duncan. Those guys were really, really, really smart, mm-hmm. right? Avery Bradley as a part of those teams, uh, Bowen as a part of those teams, those guys are damn near brilliant. If you've got brilliant basketball minds, you got a chance to win a lot of games. You meant Avery Johnson, right? Yeah, that's who did I say, Bradley? Yeah, I was like, uh, <laughs> no, Avery Johnson. Avery Johnson, yeah, and you know, that's, I was like, uh, Steve Kerr was on that team too, I believe. So, yeah, exactly. Yeah, you're exactly. right. Exactly, and Big Shot Bob. Yeah, yeah. You had a lot of really smart basketball players. That's a, that's a great point, Kent. So let's move on. We've got a little bit left to go here. Let's uh, let's get to it. Number fifteen. Who do you have at fifteen? I got Billy Keller. Who was that? Like, you, Billy Keller. Billy Keller. Okay. He he went to Purdue. He's a uh, an Indianapolis native. Went to Washington High School. He um, played for the Pacers for seven years. Was a really good shooter throughout those seven years. Excellent foul shooter. You, you talk to people who watch that team play, and I'm not old enough either to remember seeing the ABA teams uh, of the Pacers, but just a dynamic guy offensively, terrific shooter, and, and a really good teammate, so I took Billy Keller. Yeah, I don't have Billy Keller on my list either, so there's a couple guys that you put on that I have not even mentioned on my list here. So, yeah, you're right. I do remember the the shooting free throws. He's worked with plenty of Pacers. Uh, yeah, recently, and that's that's an awesome thing. I don't have much to say about him, so I'm sorry to not have a great conversation about him. But I'll take your word that he is worthy of being on this list. And at number fifteen, I've got the person that you left off your list entirely because you have so much spite <laughs> towards him, and, and that's the savior of the 2017-2018 Indiana Pacers, Victor Oladipo. Uh, <laughs> IU guy. I have met fifteen, and the only reason I put him up so high, number one. I love Vic. I think he's a great guy. He's so uh, got so much charisma, and what he did that first year for the Pacers, scoring twenty three point one points per game, two point four steals, five point two rebounds, four point three assists. He carried that team to an incredible record to get them at the five seed. Took the Cavaliers to seven games. He's getting double teamed. He didn't have great help. I mean, Bojan was still coming into his own. Saboner still really young and undeveloped. He had solid veterans and Collison and Thaddeus Young around him. But, you know, Vic made this his team. 
He played in 75 games. He's 25 years old. He had been part of an Orlando team that had never found its footing. Gets traded to OKC. And OKC immediately trades him and Sabonis to the Pacers for Paul George. The Pacers feel like they're going to take a step back and they might have to hit the lottery once again and go through a rebuild. But Victor put in the work that summer, changed his body. I mean, if you go look at his body at OKC to what it became in that first year with the Pacers, day and night different. The the body fat was so trim. He was in such great great health at that point. Like The shape that he was in, it was unbelievable. And once he started hitting big shot after big shot, you just felt like, man, this guy is the real deal. And I have said this plenty of times, I don't think Victor is good enough to be a number one on a championship team. There's no doubt about that. But I do think that the Pacers could have went into a very long, grueling rebuild. And Victor saved them from that. And now for three straight years, they're going to make the playoffs with Victor as their best player, the leader of their team. And I know this year he hasn't played a ton of games, only 13 games because of the injury. Same with last year. But when he's out there, the the Pacers are a better team. And he is their best player when he's fully healthy. So I love Victor. I know you're not a fan uh, or you have spite towards him. But (laughs) Victor deserves to be on this list, Kent. And I think fans were not happy with you for not not putting him on the list. He's played a year and a half for the Pacers. I can't. There is no self-respecting NBA franchise that's been around for as long as the Pacers have been. This is what, season 45, for goodness sake? Where if you can't find 30 guys better than a guy who's played, you know, 120 games for you, 130 games. You put Sabonis I mean, my on the God. list. Huh? But you put Sabonis oh. on the list. Sabonis has played two and a half, more than two and a half years. But that's like not it, that and, much. And he wasn't playing at an elite level. He's a two-time All-Star. Vic? Yeah. Here? Yeah, two-time all-star. He, he obviously, well, it, but he didn't play the other game. Right, well, he couldn't right, help I, that I, he got I, hurt. You can't put that on the guy. I have no angst against Victor. I, I, was, I believe I was the first guy that interviewed Victor when he got to Indiana's campus. And when I interviewed him, I told him, I said, dude, if, if like I could hire you to do anything that you wanted to do other than play basketball, because I've never seen you play basketball, I would hire you in a minute just based on that 10-minute interview. He's incredibly (laughs) smart. He's incredibly engaging. He's really athletic. What he's got to figure out, and and you alluded to it, that he is not good enough, and he will not be good enough to be the best player in a championship team. He has got to get out of his head the thought that he can be that. I know that he's overcome all kinds of things in his career. He was way under-recruited. You know, I, I don't think that he made the varsity at DeMatha High School as a sophomore. Mm-hmm. So there, there's stuff that he's had to overcome, and he believes through sheer hard work, he's going to be able to overcome everything, and that all is possible with hard work, and that's just not the case. His ceiling, he's, he's at his ceiling. And if he continues to work at the level that he does, he's going to continue to have a body that breaks down. You can overwork a body. And I think that that's Victor's Achilles heel, no no pun intended, is that he's going to continue to work himself into degradation. He's going to decline because he's going to overwork his joints. He's a wonderful dude. He's a wonderful player. I love him as a human being. He, he's a terrific credit to the organization. 
but he's got to figure out that he's not that 23-shot-per-game guy who can put a team on his shoulders and carry them to win over equally talented teams. He's just not it. Well, it, it sounds to me like we need to get you a little bit more feathery there, Kent. It's, it's, it's time yeah, well that you put away the hate for Oladipo. Let this coronavirus make uh, you know <laughs> run its course, just like your spite. Get back on that train and put him on your list. The next time we do this in a couple of years, we'll All revisit. Right. Victor better make your list unless he leaves the Pacers. Then he might not make mine if he leaves the Pacers uh, after 2021. But let's move on. I, I mean, we could talk about Victor all day. Let's move on to number 14. Who you got? I'm going to take Danny Granger, and I would assume that most people would have him a little bit higher. Uh, yeah. Um, but I've got him at uh, at number 13. He, he was incredibly popular Whoa, within the Who organization. Do you have a 14? What? You said you have him at 13. Is, oh, is I'm it? sorry. Jalen Jalen is it's at 14, 14, and we already okay. talked about him. So I went ahead and I jumped up to the next guy. But it, you do your 14th. Okay, my bad. Yeah, I got David West. Uh, at 14 for me, and I know you're probably like, oh, he only played four seasons here. How is he so high? I know, I can hear it. But he's arguably the greatest Pacers franchise uh, signing, uh, free agent signing of all time. He was the adult in the room when you had a young Paul George with Lance Stevenson in the mix. He was a perfect low post guy next to Roy Hibbert. I thought that he was a, a huge part of this team. And I don't know if you heard this or not, but he actually went on a podcast that I was listening to, and he said when he signed here that – the point guard was supposed to be Lance with Paul George, Danny himself, and Hibbert. This was with George Hill coming off the bench. Like he said that they proposed to him that Lance would be the starter, and he was all in for that. He said things kind of changed once Danny got hurt, but he said that Danny Granger was a main reason why he signed with the Pacers. So that is a perfect segue into your 13. So, yeah, uh, that's kind of why I went with David West. I just think he's a pivotal part of that Pacers uh, late or early 2010s run. And that's reasonable. I mean, that yeah, I'm not going to argue with that. I, I don't think I had him on my list because, again, he didn't play here for a long time. And, and people always talked about him being the adult in the room, but I really thought that during his last year here, he completely abdicated that place, that, that kind of that podium of leadership. I thought he hopped down and, and he just let that kind of thing cascade off the rails into a ditch and yeah. I would have liked to have seen him kind of, you know, great leaders aren't measured by what they do when times are good. They're measured by what they do when times are bad. And I thought that his leadership during bad times really needed some work. Maybe he was just exhausted. I, yeah. I can certainly understand that. But he was a he was a good dude, a hard working dude. And I like David West a lot. Yeah, he was their most clutch player too. Uh when the game was on the line when you would Always find the ball in David West's hand. Uh, we know Paul George never really had a game-winner buzzer beater, but David West had plenty of mid-range jumpers yeah. that he cashed. I mean, you think about that for that 2000, I believe it was 13, 14 year when they ended up losing five, I believe it was, to the Heat. That first round against Atlanta, game six, we're down 3-2. David West was the one that brought the Pacers back. Uh, phenomenal performance there. I mean, I just I love David West. There's a soft spot in my heart for him. He, he chose Indiana. We don't usually see guys – choose Indiana but him choosing Indiana meant a lot to me and the success that we had with him wish we could have won a championship wish we could have beat the heat in one of those game sevens but we didn't but he was more part of the success of the team than he was a problem with the team so that's why I got him there but let's move on number 13 Danny Granger let's hear what you have to say about him Kim 
Yeah, I, I thought that Danny was terrific until his knees just wouldn't let him play anymore. Yeah, you know, retired at the age of 31, and, and that was a shame. His first four years, uh, I, he just kept stair-stepping his way up to the point where he was an all-star. And, you know, everybody knew that he fell to 17 because of concerns about his physicality and, and about his knees. But I, I thought that he was terrific. I know that he was beloved. When he was there, I mean, people were really genuinely, not players, I mean, front office people and media relations people, genuinely hurt, I think. when And, and they know what the score is, and they know that guys are going to be traded, and that, there comes an end of the road for everybody with the franchise. But they were genuinely kind of crestfallen when Danny Granger went to the 76ers and uh, in that trade where, where we got back Lavoy Allen and then uh, yeah, the guy of which I, I guess, you know, most Pacers fans don't speak, which I sort of don't understand in Evan Turner. Um, but I, I thought that Danny for a while, for about five years, was really a good basketball player and, and maybe deserves to be a little bit higher on the list. But I'll, mm-hmm. sit, I'll sit with him at thirteen. What was, for me, Ken, I'm just going to say this, the moment that I immediately fell in love with Danny Granger was, I forget what year it was, but I know he was starting. We had Dunleavy, we had Murphy, and we were playing the Boston Celtics in the home opener. He dives on the floor at center court with Paul Pierce. Oh, jeez, yeah. Knocks the both teeth. his teeth out. And yeah. I just remember when I saw him dive on the floor for that loose ball in a regular season game like that, knocking both teeth out, and he and he looks up at I think it was Jim O'Brien and shows him he's got no teeth left. All I thought immediately was I love this guy. The hustle, the the tenacity, the the way he was playing the game was just something that I was like, okay, I'm all in on this guy. You know, he actually had some big game winners against the Knicks, against the Phoenix Suns that I can recall off the top of my head. Uh, terrific three point shooter. Obviously, similar to an Oladipo, he was one of those guys you never were going to win a championship with as the best player on the team. But he's a terrific guy. Terrific person to represent the organization i wish he would have been healthy when we had paul george coming into his prime with david west with hibbert with george Hill. if you would have been able to keep them those five together healthy with a lance stevenson coming off the bench with scola with that group yon mahimi i mean the pacers would have had a much better chance in my opinion of beating lebron james on the miami heat don't know if they would have done it but i think they would have had a better chance with granger being a part of that team and being healthy. And if they maybe don't trade him to Phoenix or to Philadelphia, excuse me, maybe he does uh, help the chemistry of that team. Just being that guy there, that solid, that brother. I mean, he was like a brother to those guys. And being that mentor for that young group, that would have been huge maybe for the playoffs. But, you know, I don't blame, I don't blame Larry Bird for trying to make a deal for a guy that wasn't playing. You know, right? They were trying to get better. That's why I get so mad. People are like we should have never brought Andrew Bynum in. Like my co, or my co-host for Wednesday show, Mike Focci. Um, you know, you've talked to him before. He hates Andrew Bynum, and I'm like, dude, look, the guy came in for two games. If Roy Hibbert wasn't able to handle him for two games, that's more on Hibbert than it is Bynum. And the Pacers were trying to win a championship, and Bynum was never going to take Hibbert's spot. That was the goal. He was going to be the backup center. He knew his role when he came in in those two games. I hate to say it, but he outplayed Hibbert. So. You know, uh, obviously Bynum is somebody that's not going to make this list because he only played two games, but I would have loved to put him on there just to see your reaction. (laughs) But, (laughs) you know, same with Evan Turner. Like, I get it. The trades didn't work out, but I don't don't blame Larry Bird for trying to 
bolster the roster. Maybe he shouldn't have traded Granger because of the chemistry issues, but I can't hate on him for that. I'm sorry. I just can't do it. No, I can't either. And, you know, Granger obviously was done from that point forward. He played, uh, I mean, how many games did he play? 40, 71 games after he went that. all over the place. So, yeah, he, he, he played in a lot, of, a lot of places and with the Clippers and then with the Heat. And uh, a good shooter, but his body wouldn't let him continue. And he, oddly, the first time I ever saw an iPhone was Danny Granger's. He okay. he came into the uh, he came into WIBC to cut a commercial. He was voicing a spot for somebody, mm-hmm. and uh, he came in. I was like, "What? What's your phone? What do you got?" And he goes, "Oh yes, yeah, iPhone." And that was the first. And I think it was the day that the iPhone was released, the first version. And that was the first one I ever saw. He was very cool about it, and always a very nice guy. I mean, really, I I think suited his personality and this city. We're a pretty damn good match together. Yeah. No, I love Danny Granger. He made my top ten list. I'll start off things with him next week when we come back. But, yeah, Danny Granger, for me personally, I have him up higher just because I liked him personally. And sure. this is my list, so I don't care if you don't like it. But uh, number 13 for me, I've got Dale Davis. You know, just somebody was a bruiser with the Pacers. These are numbers that are not going to – make you think that he's worth uh, putting this high. But 9.3 points, 9, 9 rebounds. He was a decent shot blocker with 1.3 blocks a game. You know, he shot about 54% from two. Oh, a horrible free throw shooter at 53%. You know, it was just one of those things career-wise where he was a big part of the Pacers' success. He was that yeah. bruiser. I mean, when you watch 90s basketball, if you came in the paint, you were going to put be put on the ground, and he had no problem doing that. And Rick Smith, you know, Rick Smith wasn't necessarily a tough guy, so you needed someone to be a little bit of a tough, nasty guy. And if you saw Dell Davis with, you know, with that haircut that he had when he had hair, with that beard, that dude was scary. I mean, uh, <laughs> he was ripped. He was chiseled. Uh, just a guy that I was a huge fan of. I always loved Dale. Always thought he was a huge part of the Pacers' success, and that's why I have him at 13. You need a guy who, when he gets off the team bus, opponents or comes out for warmups, opponents are like, ah, hell, we got to play against that guy. Right. You know, and that was Dale Davis. And I've actually got him a little bit higher on the list. Okay. And, and so I couldn't agree more with you. I, I thought that he was not from a personality perspective, but from a physicality perspective. I thought he was a great glue guy for those teams. And, and for me, winning is really important. Mm-hmm. In, in assessing value and putting guys on this list. So the 98 through 2000 guys, they got love. The ABA guys who were here for three championships, they got love. At the expense of guys who might have been better basketball players who played maybe in the early 80s, the late 70s, maybe the early 90s, uh, Dale Davis certainly one of those guys. And Dale Davis is a guy, there's a, uh, a guy, this is kind of odd, but he, uh, he works in California as a, a software guy or did. And what he's kind of devoted his later life to, he's a guy named Tom Nordland. And he teaches people how to shoot. And he worked with Dale Davis on being a better foul shooter and figuring out how to do that. And Dale, when he worked with Nordland, became much, much better at it. And and really, you can make the argument that if Dale had been a better foul shooter, they would have beaten the Bulls 
in Game 7 up in Chicago at the United Center. He went to work at becoming a better foul shooter. And for a brief period of time, I think the following two years, he was a better foul shooter. And if you go to not to throw like, you know, uh, uh, any kind of endorsement to Tom Nordland, who actually is a really good teacher of shooting the basketball, you can go to swish22.com. And that's his website. And the way he explains it makes a lot of sense to a lot of people who maybe otherwise wouldn't understand shooting a basketball. Yeah, no, there's no doubt about it. I think, let's see here, in those later years, he shot around 70%. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, he did improve it. There's For a while there, he was in the forty, in the low 40s. So, yeah, I see that he improved it, and that's a cool story. So um, let's move on. Number 12, who you got? I've got Paul George. Oh, wow. Now, people that's call really me crazy. I, I don't like Paul George. Oh. There's very little about Paul George that I remember of him being positive. Um, lying to all of us at the, uh, at the celebrity softball event about why <laughs> i love to, your spike Kent. this is great this is great yeah radio and, and putting him at 12 kind of made my hand tremble a little bit because i didn't want to put him on the damn list at all you should have put but him the at 13 a, <laughs> you know i did have him at 13 but then i thought wait a minute he would can like i really it. put danny granger up in front of paul paul was a four-time all-star danny was a one-time all-star That's paul true. almost always won once he got that starting spot with the Pacers, he came here as kind of a guileless kid mm-hmm. who hadn't really figured out a lot of stuff. And all of a sudden, all these people who were around him, and I don't know who it was, whether it was family or agents or, or marketing people or whoever, they kind of filled his head with a bunch of nonsense about being you know, PG-13 and being this brand instead of being a basketball player. And when he became the brand Paul George or the brand PG-13 instead of a basketball player and a human being, I really stopped having anything to do with that guy. Yeah. Talking to him like he's just sitting there in the locker room after a win, and you'd think, do I really want to talk to this guy? Number one, he never says anything. Number two, he thinks that he invented the damn game. I'll pass. And so I'd just walk away, talk to somebody else, because I just didn't enjoy it. I didn't enjoy him as a human being. I don't enjoy him as an, an ex-pacer. And if his, I, I can't believe it ever would, but if they ever entertained the notion of retiring his number, I would lose my mind. <laughs> I don't think that's going to happen at all, Ken. I think you're safe there. Um, yeah, so it's funny because today on Twitter, I got tagged in a post to you know, write my top five Pacers, my favorite Pacers of all time. And so, you know, I, I was born in 92, so I've seen, you know, some of the late 90s stuff when I was a kid, but don't really remember it. I remember more of the the Mouse at the Palace from on eras. And so I love Paul George, but I wrote PG-24 because I liked him at 24. Nice. And he was number 24 when he was coming into his own, the dunk on Birdman. You know, the game tying three that he had in the end of game one against LeBron with that pass from David West where he's like twerking his body, shoots it. You know, even even the game five in the Eastern Conference Finals when he was just going off in Banker's Live Fieldhouse, just hitting three after three after three to keep the distance. Even though the, the heat kept coming back, it was just like, I love this guy. But as soon as they traded George Hill, as soon as the David West and Hibbert moved on and he was PG-13, he was still – a good basketball player. We we thought he was fantastic in that Toronto Raptors series. You know, the the year when he started to go out, 
talking about the, the Cavaliers. I should have got the ball. C.J. Miles shouldn't have shot that wide open oh, shot. Oh, boy. You know, yeah. That ego type thing. He kept saying, I don't want to play the four. I don't want to be a four. I'm a three, blah, blah, blah. So you have C.J. Miles, who's smaller than Paul George, playing the four, and then that guy gets mad because he shoots a three. Like, you know, it just got very old. I was like, this guy's out of here. I don't believe a word he's saying. If his lips are moving, he's lying. And it's one of those things. I don't wish him any ill towards. I don't have any ill feelings towards him. But I'm glad he that he. I'm glad that he requested the trade when he did. I'm glad that we got Oladipo and Sabonis back because those two guys have become some of my favorite Pacers of all time. I've already got Sabonis in my top five Pacers favorite Pacers of all time to watch. I just love the guy, and I I would I would rather root for a guy like Oladipo and a guy like Sabonis than a guy like Paul George. But he's obviously the better player, no doubt about it. He deserves to be high on the list for where he took the Pacers, arguably one of the best. Not maybe even the most talented pacer in NBA history for the pacer. Yeah, guys. you could maybe make that argument. I don't know. I, I find I find him so repelled as a human being <laughs> that that I just I you know I can't. It's my list, yeah. and, and so I'm sticking to it. I, I don't like the guy. I'm glad he's gone. To hell with him. I'm glad we got Vic and Domas. I'm plenty happy with those guys. He's better as an ex-pacer than he was as a pacer. I like him better now that he's gone because we got those two guys in his place. Yeah, so for me, number 12 and number 11 are repeat conversations that we've already had. So at number 12, I had Chuck Person, and number 11, I had Mark Jackson, and I touched on why I like both those guys a lot. Uh, just real quick on Person, I just, I mean, look at the numbers that he had. 19 points a game with the Pacers. Really kind of, you know, elevated them to a playoff team when they had been struggling for years. Him and Reggie in that Boston series, like he was the guy and they had a chance to upset the Celtics before Bird came back after hitting his head super hard on the ground. I mean, we've seen those old highlights along like a lot recently for some reason i've seen those resurface quite a bit recently yeah. but you know i mean you just see that game and the rifle man was special and of course mark jackson just a special place in my heart from what he did and you mentioned it he was so pivotal to reggie miller's success being back there as his backcourt teammate so yeah those two guys were on the list for me at 12 and 11 so that leaves our last one with you kent number 11 who you got this, I, I, I maybe should have gone a little bit higher, but there's no championship uh, with with this guy. And uh, so I, I've got Jermaine O'Neal okay. at number 11. I, I, I've got nothing against him personally, other than, although, although, you know what, he's a six-time All-Star. They never won a championship with him. But in his interview with Kravitz and Eddie, uh, on his way out of town after he got traded, he said, well, I can't wait to come back when they hoist my number into the rafters. A- and I thought, huh, I don't think he understands how this works. Yeah, You know, Jermaine just, he while he was a superior basketball player, there wasn't a lot of charisma to him. And so we never really got a chance to know him. Although, you know, when he played in that uh, – what is it, that big three deal that uh-huh. Ice Cube's put together. He was really interesting and and, and quite fun um, in talking to the media and in kind of engaging with fans. Um, he wasn't that way when he played, and I don't know why that is, but he was a really, really good basketball player who was probably, I don't know whether he was hurt ultimately by coming straight out of college. I mean, he was really, really young. Mm-hmm. He he came out in in ninety six. So October ninety six. How old was he then? Eighteen. He was 
yeah, he had just turned 18. Mm-hmm. He, he turned 18 on October 13th. And, and so really, really, really young. And he kind of just sat for Portland at first. And then when he came here in that deal for Dale Davis, you know, all of a sudden, kaboom, he got really good. But I never thought, I, I never thought, well, there's a guy you're going to win a championship with. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like there, there was there was no fizz to him. There, there was no carbonation, and uh, so I graded him down a little bit because of that. But damn, you know, um, he was pretty. He was a really good basketball player. Yeah, I mean, there was there's some clips you can watch. I think his career high was like 55 points or something like that against the Boston Celtics, and you can go back and watch those highlights on YouTube. I recommend doing that. You know, one of his biggest problems was similar to Paul George. He didn't want to play the center. And that's when we had Al Harrington, Steven Jackson, and he was like, well, I'm not playing center. So Foster had to play center, which I love Foster, so I was fine with it. But then you had to decide between playing Al or I believe it was Steven Jackson at the three. And eventually it was Al was the guy that came off the bench. And then when he would come in, he would come in for Foster. So Jermaine still had to play the center some, but it was just like the fact that he didn't have to start at center made him feel so much better for some reason. Uh, don't understand guys that get like that, but you know Jermaine dealt with some injuries in his career. There's no doubt about it. He had some terrific yeah. runs from oh uh, two to really oh seven. He was an all star all those years, and then he just kind of started hitting the injury bug from oh eight, and that's why the Pacers eventually traded him to Toronto, where they got back Roy Hibbert. So. He, in that deal, you know, you get a guy that eventually becomes a pivotal part of your success of the franchise. So it wasn't like they got nothing out of him, but he definitely regressed. And there was a time there when, with the Pacers, he was an MVP candidate. So it was uh, it was cool to see. I just, you know, he was never that tough guy, in my opinion. You know, you look at a Ben Wallace and a Rasheed right. Wallace, those guys would beat up on him. You didn't feel like Jermaine was going to beat up back on those guys. That's why you almost needed an Artest and a Feisty Foster to to kind of be the the tough guys of that group. Where Jermaine was, he was so not tough. Yeah, that like he would post and he would get moved off the block and moved off the block and moved off the block. And by the time they made the entry pass to him, he's about fifteen feet out. Yeah, you know he he was really not good at establishing post position getting the basketball and converting. He, he Really, I mean, like he got moved more toward the guy with the ball on the wing. He was further from the block than he was the guy in the wing. Spacing the court was really difficult because he couldn't get that spot. Yeah, I mean, if he would have played with as much aggression as he had against that fan that stepped in front of him in the mouse of the palace where he just, <laughs> you know, could have launched him a 1,000 feet, if he would have played like that the entire time, it would have been fantastic to see that tenacity out of him but i mean jermaine's a beloved pacer he was fantastic when he came on our podcast and he was so gracious so humble talked about everything and we absolutely loved him i know my co-host mike Fachi in second name drop he was fanboying uh his favorite player in the entire world is jermaine o'neill and i have no idea why nice. uh but hey you know what we all find different connections with different players so uh, I'm all for it. Jermaine is higher on my list. So is Paul George. I'm not as much of a spite guy as Kent. But, you know, it's uh, it's our list. We're going to have fun talking about it. But pretty long episode, Kent. We went about an hour and 15 minutes. <laughs> my goodness. So uh, any final thoughts before we sign off here? No, not really. Just a lot of fun. A lot of, uh, you know, good times remembering a lot of good basketball. Absolutely. So next week we'll come back with our top ten 
and we'll get to hear all of Kent's uh, crazy ideas. And once again, <laughs> Kent is the guy that left Victor Oladipo off his top Pacers list because he's only played a season and a half here, even though he saved the franchise from going into a complete another rebuild. So until next time, everybody, I'll sign off before Kent gets the last word. We'll talk to you next week. Follow us on Setting the Pace 3 on Twitter. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.